We are in our sermon series, Fans or Followers. This is now part five, and, you know, we've been using Jesus' words, if anyone would follow me. He must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow. Now, we've talked about different aspects of that verse, but we've really not talked about what it means to take up one's cross. Um, I heard a story a while back of a, of a preacher who was giving a red carpet tour of, he was given a red carpet tour of another pastor's church. And with pride, the pastor of that other church uh, pointed to the, the beautiful imported pews that they had purchased from overseas to adorn their sanctuary, the, the luxurious decorations that they'd placed inside their sanctuary. And as they stepped outside, darkness was starting to fall, and, and this bright spotlight shone on this big cross that they'd put atop the steeple of, of their church. And the pastor said to the other pastor, he said, that cross alone cost us $10,000. The minister, the other pastor, looked up at the cross and he said, you know what, you got cheated. There was a time when Christians could get those things for three, for free. Now, not to be funny with that, but we all know that there was a time that if you were a follower of Jesus, you could get a cross for free. We are told that when Titus and the Roman armies overran the city of Jerusalem in 70 A.D., that the crosses for Christians, Christians hanging on those crosses, were so close together, they struggled to find any more room to put one more cross. All for the sake of following Jesus. You're in 1 Corinthians chapter number 1. Um, I know on your smartphones this morning you have a translation of the English Standard Version. I'm, I uh, had Leonard switch and I didn't even think to switch to the new version that I, or the new version, the English Standard Version. So I'm still reading from my old translation this morning. Uh, I was going to try and switch it up on the fly, but I think it'd be better if I just read as I was planning on reading in chapter number one of First Corinthians, beginning with verse. Number 18, the Apostle Paul says the message of the cross is foolish to those who are headed for destruction. But we who are being saved know it is the very power of God, as the Scriptures say, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and discard the intelligence of the intelligent. So where does this leave the philosophers, the scholars, and the world's brilliant debaters? God has made the wisdom of this world look foolish since God in his wisdom saw to it that the world would never know him through human wisdom. He has used our foolish preaching to save those who believe. It is foolish to the Jews who ask for signs from heaven and it is foolish to the Greeks who seek human wisdom. Now hear this. So when we preach that Christ was crucified, the Jews are offended and the Gentiles 
say it's all nonsense. Lord Jesus, thank you for your cross. Lord, without that cross and you hanging from it, there would be no practical reason for any of us to be here this morning. But it's because of that cross that we can gather as your body, saved, sanctified, and on our way to heaven. And Jesus, we thank you for that blessed hope. Be with us in this message, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Crosses. You know, today we wear crosses as part of our jewelry. Crosses decorate the walls of our homes. Churches have embedded their crosses. Those who have stained glass windows, they've embedded crosses into their, those windows. They place them on spires that advertise to the world that that particular building is a church building. Now, let me just say, there's nothing wrong with that at all. In fact, using crosses is an excellent way to declare to the world who we belong to and, and uh, what we believe. But using crosses so freely sometimes makes people forget what crosses were all about. Uh, crosses, friends, were instruments of death. In fact, dying on the cross is said to be the most horrific way of dying that man ever conceived. Some people have, in today's world, have compared the, the cross of Christ to what we would call the electric chair. But people who died in the electric chair, they generally die within a few seconds or minutes, whereas, by contrast, those who hung on crosses, it took hours and some even days of hanging there before they died that painstakingly cru cruel death. I thought about that. I, I, I read an article online about someone who compared the cross of Christ to an electric chair, and as I was thinking about that, I thought, well, if that's true, can you imagine wearing a necklace with an electric chair for a pendant? Or hanging from a necklace? How about decorating your house with a picture of an electric chair? Or maybe putting an electric chair on the spire of our church building? You think that would be very appealing? I don't either. So we need to keep in mind that the cross was an instrument of death. That's how criminals were put to death in Jesus' day. And yet Jesus tells us, take up your cross daily and follow me. So what does that mean? What does that mean for you and I in 2019? Well, and I want you to hear me out on this. At the risk of sounding cruel and perhaps even crass, Jesus is saying in those words, I want you dead. Now, don't run with that. Jesus is saying, I want you dead to this world. I want you dead to this world. In fact, I want you to be so dead to this world that it no longer holds an attraction to you. It's what Jesus wanted us to know when, he, when we made the decision to follow him. And Paul talks about it. 
In Romans chapter 6, verse number 2. If you want to go there, right quick. There Paul says these words. Since we have died to sin, how can we continue to live in it? Or have you forgotten that when we were joined with Christ Jesus in baptism, we joined him in his death. For we died and were buried with Christ by baptism. And just as as Christ was raised from the dead by the glorious power of the Father, now we also may live new lives. Since we have been united with him in his death, we will also be raised to life as he was. We know that our old sinful selves were crucified with Christ so that sin might lose its power in our lives. We are no longer slaves to sin because of the cross. Because of the cross. Aren't you thankful for that? So having heard all of that about the cross, I want you this morning to use your sanctified imagination with me again for a moment. I I was wanting to get a prop for this morning, but I couldn't talk Brenham and Funeral Home into it. I was thinking it would be perfect if I could put a corpse up here on the platform. Um, And like I said, for some reason they wouldn't let me have one. So you're just going to have to imagine a dead body up here on the corner of the stage, right? Now, you already passed lesson number one of this test a few weeks ago in this sermon series. But this is part two. Now, the dead body is here, and I'm going to put in front of that imaginary dead body a 12-ounce ribeye with a loaded baked potato, corn on the cob, and a slice of cherry pie in front of that corpse. Let me ask you a question. Does that corpse's mouth begin to water when he sees the deliciousness of that food? No. Why? Because he's dead. You're still getting it right. That meal would have no appeal to a corpse because it's dead to fleshly appetites. So, test number two. Let's say we take this corpse out into our parking lot. And we put it behind the wheel. (laughs) Having a terrible mental image of this. We put that corpse behind the wheel of a 2019 Corvette. It's impressive with its smooth lines, its flashy paint job. But is that corpse attracted to that 2019 Corvette? Why? Because it's dead. One last test. So let's take that corpse to the most elaborate, decked out, spacious house in the state of Kansas. A house that has all of the amenities that anyone could ever want in a living space. Is it going to make any difference to that corpse? No. (laughs) Why? Because it's dead. Now, I know that's an exaggerated example. But I'm using that illustration to make this statement. There is nothing in the world that could be attractive to that corpse. There's nothing in the world that could impress that corpse. There's nothing in the world that would be appealing to that corpse because it's dead to the world. 
There was a contemporary artist a number of years ago named Rob Frazier who wrote a song with these lyrics. It goes like this, dead people don't mind the pain, don't get offended, so they never complain. They're not concerned about personal gain, does that sound like me or you? The truth is rising from the mist, and the word is this, that when Jesus calls a man, he calls him to come and die. If you want to follow, he doesn't want you better, he wants you deader. I kind of like that. And I'm not going to get into the, 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 to the theological accuracy of those lyrics, but let me just say that the cross and everything that the cross stands for is offensive to many people in our world today. Would you believe that there are churches in America whose denominations have, I don't want to say voted, who have decided that they don't want to, no longer want to preach the blood of Jesus because it's a gory topic? Friends, without the blood of Jesus, we have nothing. We're still slaves to our sin. But because of the blood of Jesus, we've been set free. And we must always proclaim the blood of Jesus that was shed on that cross of Calvary. You see, the problem for a lot of church folk is that the church no longer wants to offend anyone. Just a couple of weeks ago, I... I heard the story of a, of a pastor who had been fired from his church because he refused to go along with the rest of the church leadership by looking the other way over an adulterous affair that one of the deacons was having. Now think about that. Yes, it's a difficult situation. And this church liked their pastor. But they chose to relieve him of his pastoral duties because he confronted a deacon involved in an adulterous affair. That same pastor in the story, as the story went on, was telling this to his fr one of his friends out on the golf course, an unsaved friend. And this unsaved friend couldn't understand why this pastor would put his job and his livelihood on the line over such an issue as that. He looked at the pastor and he said, why not just let it go and let the deacon off? If you were a pastor in Los Angeles, you wouldn't preach against homosexuality, would you? And he said, absolutely I would. Because it's what the Bible says, that God hates the sin of homosexuality. He couldn't understand that. Why would you put your job on the line for something like biblical morality? Why follow the cross and lose your livelihood? Another example from the news just a few months ago, California State University in Bakersfield, California, had a ministry that was known as InterVarsity. InterVarsity is a ministry on 23 campuses uh, across the state of California, but Cal State University at Bakersfield decided they were going to de-recognize this college group because of their stance on issues. Um, it's a ministry totally run by the students. They have a president of the group, they have a vice president, they have treasurers, they have secretaries, like any ordinary group on campus, 
And up until recently, they were allowed to, to use one of the many uh, rooms to, to meet together as a fellowship, just like all of the other campus organizations were doing on campus, and they could do it for free. But CSU decided no longer. No longer are we going to allow them to meet in our rooms. Because the, the administration of Cal State University was offended, and I want to get this right, so I'm going to read it, that this intervarsity ministry would discriminate against disallowing students in leadership to live with their boyfriends or girlfriends, to live a homosexual lifestyle, or other immoral issues in their lives. And since these moral values were held by these students, a member of InterVarsity, who, uh, who were self-proclaimed followers of Jesus, the churches that they attended, Cal State University said, if that's the morality that they're teaching at these churches that also proclaim the cross, we're no longer going to allow them on campus. They're annoyed. They're offended that any campus organization would take a stand for any church who preaches against those lifestyles and who at the same time preaches the cross of Jesus Christ. While we're on that topic, most of those students are part of that generation that we would, we would call millennials. And I know there's probably some millennials in the room, and this doesn't apply to every millennial, but I think you'll get my drift. One of the big issues that faces the church, and I'm talking about the church and also this church, one of the big issues that we face as a church here in liberal Kansas is the concern about this new generation called the millennials and how to reach them with the good news of Jesus. We're concerned because it's difficult to reach this generation knowing that they're just like any other generation. They need to be and should be being reached with the good news of Jesus, right? And as a result... There are many churches in America, much, churches much larger than this one, who are now having a debate internally on how to change the message of Jesus in such a way so that the millennials will receive it. A CNN reporter, Laura Session Stepp, spoke recently on this, and she said, and I quote, Millennials don't appreciate being condemned for living with a partner, for being straight or gay, for having sex outside of marriage, or for opting for abortion to terminate an unwanted pregnancy. Preaching of moral values, such as those that I just mentioned, by churches who also preach the cross of Jesus, is offensive to many of that generation. The teaching of the cross along with the biblical teachings of these morality issues is annoying to them. And if you look at church statistics, you will find that those who are part of the millennial generation are leaving the church in droves. The most recent study indicates that if a person doesn't come to the faith in Jesus Christ by the age of 18, there is less than a 2.4% chance that they will ever come to faith in Christ taking up your cross. The Apostle Paul writes these words in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse number 3. He said, A time is coming when people will no longer listen to sound and wholesome teaching. They will follow their own desires and will look for teachers 
who will tell them whatever their itching ears want to hear. They want to hear what they want to hear. They don't want to hear nothing more. They don't want to hear nothing less. They want to hear what they want to hear. So then, they don't want to hear about the cross. They don't want to do what Jesus requires in terms of what the cross means in following him. They don't want to die to self. They don't want to die to the things of this world. They want to have their cake and eat it too. So having heard all of that, and I know that's depressing, and that's not what I'm here to do. My question that I want to talk about this morning is how do you deal with people who have itching ears? Only hearing what they want to hear. How do you deal with people who are offended by the preaching of the cross? Well, I've thought about it long and hard, and I've only been able to come up with two options. One's good, one's not so good. And the one that's not so good is to take the option of just avoiding, avoiding offending them. Just live and let live. Let them believe what they want to believe because if you speak up, you might make them mad. And unfortunately, that's the option that many people have taken. It does no good, so why say anything? might lose a friend, you might lose a job, you might lose an opportunity to move up in the world, so just keep your mouth shut and leave them to themselves. Now, I want you to hear me on this. There are times when it's better to keep your mouth shut. Now, let me explain that. There are times when it's better not to say something than to end up saying something that's harsh or mean-spirited, Amen. Um, I, you know, I've been in conversations with people about the things of God, and, and I've found that most people, or a lot of the people anyway, that I get into those types of conversations with, the purpose of their conversation is to have an argument. I, I, I've talked with Michael and several of you about a dear friend of mine who, who wants to argue. I mean, he's, he's renounced his faith in Christ, and he's become an atheist, and he feels... It's his call and appointed duty to trash me for my faith that he once shared and try to convince me of the viability of his atheism. And uh, his objective, I believe, is to win an argument. He's not there to discuss my opinions versus his opinions, his opinions. He's there to win an argument. And the Apostle Paul talks about that too, again, in 2 Timothy chapter number 2. In verse number 23, the Apostle says, Again, I say, don't get involved in foolish, ignorant arguments that only start fights. A servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but must be kind to everyone. Be able to teach and be patient with difficult people. Gently instruct those who oppose the truth. Perhaps God will change those people's hearts and they will learn the truth. Then they will come to their senses and escape from the devil's trap. For they have been held captive by him to do whatever he wants. Now let me just say in fairness to that friend that I just told you about of mine. Had a conversation with him two days ago. And I'm starting to hear, I'm starting to hear a few cracks 
in his arguments. We had a mutual friend who committed suicide in Garden City this week, and so that, that was the source of our conversation. And, and, and he, he, without saying so, you could tell there was something touching his heart uh, about the pain that this individual who had committed suicide was going through and, and that God understands those kinds of things. Now, he never used God's name, but I, I could tell there was something there that didn't spring from his doctrine of atheism, but rather from his former doctrine of faith in Jesus. Now, I have purposed, this has been ongoing now for six to eight months, these conversations with this young man, and I have purposed I'm not going to argue with him. I'm going to be gentle. I'm going to be kind. Is it frustrating? Ask Brenda. She knows how frustrated and hurt that I am after those conversations. But the gentleness and the kindness, I have to believe, is starting to have an effect and is starting to put cracks in that wall of defense. And I pray that that's the case. But back to the message. You see, there are times when all people want to do is quarrel. Paul tells us we're not supposed to do that. We're not supposed to get into it with them. Just tell them, as I have with him, I'm not interested in discussing it right now, and I'm sure not going to discuss it on social media with you. Where it's possible, Paul says, we should gently instruct the person we're talking to. And in doing so, we should be kind and gentle in doing it and not resentful. Don't you miss the day when it was okay to agree to disagree? Don't, don't you miss the day when you could disagree with a friend on social media without having them to worry about them defriending you? But see, that's what the media has done in our world today. They, they, they've drawn a line in the sand, and if, if you don't agree with me, then we are in opposition with each other. We don't have to be that way. We don't have to be that way. As followers of Jesus, as I said, it, it, it's difficult to do that in, in today's world, but if we can freely discuss our beliefs, our values, and diligently listen to the beliefs and values of others and find that we still disagree, simply agree to disagree. There's nothing wrong with that. You've had the opportunity to voice your stance, and that's all you can ask for. Now, I, I want you to hear me on this because I'm getting to something that's really, really important. You see, as followers of Jesus, we need to understand that many people believe and live like they live and think like they think because they're sinners. How many of you know what sinners do? They sin. That's why they're sinners. We need to understand that. If they're sinners and not followers of Jesus, what do you expect them to act like? They're not going to act like Jesus. What I've found is people who don't know or understand the things of Christ. The things of Christ make no sense to them whatsoever. And what's going to happen is they're going to die in their sins unless we can gently pull them closer to the cross by being kind and gentle. 
That's, that'll give you your best opportunity to see change come to their lives. Somebody said it this way. You can catch more bees with honey than you can with vinegar. Right? All we succeed in doing by arguing with the lost is making them better at arguing. They learn to dig deeper trenches, build higher walls. But if we're gentle and kind, it's harder for them to fight against us. And also note that Paul, and this is the part I mentioned a while ago that I want you to really hear me on. Paul stresses that we don't have to win the argument. We need to let God win the argument. Hallelujah. Remember his words that we read a while ago? Gently instruct those who oppose the truth. Perhaps God will change their hearts and they will learn the truth. Can I just say this to you? I hope no one is offended by this because you're good people. You don't get into these kinds of arguments with people. The goal is not to steamroll over others with your great wisdom. Let that sink in. The goal is not to steamroll anyone with your great wisdom. The goal is to bring them to a place where they feel empty without Jesus. Every story, every word that we speak should be designed to make people desirous of a relationship with Jesus. Now, that's option number one. Avoid offending them. Option number two is this. We must be willing to present Jesus to them as well. As followers of Jesus, we have to be known for the cross of Christ. Without the cross of Christ, as I said earlier, we have nothing valuable to offer to anyone. People need to know what we stand for as the blood-bought, redeemed children of God that we are. People need to know that. Paul wrote to the church in Corinth, and he said these words in 1 Corinthians 2.2, I would forget everything. What's everything? If you read earlier, it says, I would forget my lofty words and impressive wisdom, but I would forget everything except Jesus Christ, the one who is crucified. To the Galatian church, he wrote these words from Galatians 6.14, May I never boast about anything except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because of that cross, my interest in this world has been crucified, and the world's interest in me has also died. He wrote to the church in Rome these words from Romans 1.16, one of my favorite scriptures. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is the power of God at work, saving everyone who believes, the Jew first and also the Gentile. There was a man whose name was Paul Figpin, who was a graduate of Yale University, an Ivy League college. By the way, did you know that those institutions of higher learning like Yale and and Harvard and Dartmouth and Columbia and Colgate, do you know how they were started? By people of faith. Those universities were founded by people of faith. That was a long time ago, and they've departed from some of those values. But 
This man named Paul Thigpen was a graduate of Yale University, and he shared about the time one of his college buddies at Yale, a devout Christian and a member of a campus fellowship, had been chosen captain of the Yale football team. It had long been an Ivy League tradition that the team captain of the football team should be welcomed into a prestigious secret society that existed on campus. But that particular secret society had a reputation, a reputation for lewdness. And so his friend, the football player, having been chosen the captain of the football team, declined the invitation to become a member of that secret society. That decision puzzled many in the University of Yale's leadership and the student community But once his reason for declining the invitation became public, his stand for morality started countless conversations among students about the nature of faith and commitment. And in one bold stroke, his friend scattered seed for the gospel of Jesus Christ all across the Yale campus. He took a stand. He was willing to present Jesus Paul again said, I would forget everything except Jesus Christ, the one who is crucified. When I think about that verse, it brought me to a question. What would it be like if we all decided to start living like that? Forgetting everything except Jesus and Him crucified? What would it be like if we decided to know nothing at our job except Jesus and Him crucified? I'll tell you what it would mean. It would mean that when we worked at that job, we were working for the boss as if Jesus were the boss Himself. You know, we all have mortal bosses, right? And some of them may not be very nice people to be around. But as their employee... We work for them. Colleen, don't look at Michael. (laughs) As their employee, we work for them as if we are pleasing Jesus in our every action and ethic. Question number two, what would it be like if, if I decided to know nothing in my family except Jesus and Him crucified? It would mean that I've decided to treat my family as if they belong to Jesus. What would it mean if I decided to know nothing in my leisure time except Jesus and Him crucified? Well, for me, it would mean that while I'm out coaching that baseball team of 10 to 12-year-old boys down in Booker, that I share Jesus with them. Let me just tell you something. And by the way, our record's 6 and 0, Jeremy. We don't wear even red socks. But before each game, we go out in the outfield and we gather in a circle. Every boy's hat comes off. And we pray and ask Jesus to make us good sportsmen, to do our very best to protect our team and the other team as well from injury. And it's 
I mean, I don't know any of those boys, their personal lives, except Chase, my grandson. He's the only one. But the looks on those kids' faces when we're praying at something as insignificant as a baseball game, I believe that that there are going to be some decisions made for Jesus from that baseball team. For others of you, it may be camping while you're, while you're camping or sitting in the sun relaxing. Whatever it is, your leisure time, you're going to spend time talking to Jesus. Another thing about that baseball team, when the other team makes a pitching change and the pitcher's taking his warm-up tosses, I'm walking down the third baseline. And I'm looking at the green grass, and I'm looking at the beautiful clouds, and I'm looking at the blue sky, and I'm thanking Jesus that I have the opportunity to share these wonderful moments doing something I love and teaching those kids how to play baseball. There's a bigger agenda than winning baseball games. It's showing those kids how to follow Jesus. In other words, we do our best to focus everything in our lives around Jesus. Have you ever known someone who could tell a great story? And and, and their stories always wound up with them being the good guy or the hero. You know, I I have to, as a pastor, I have to guard against doing that. I, I love to share stories, but I've concluded that the best stories that I tell don't focus on me being the hero. The best stories that I tell show that God is the hero. Amen? I've decided that my stories need to be more focused on Christ and Him crucified. And let me just say, I'm not the only one. I find that very few people do that on a consistent basis. But what I'm trying to get through to you this morning is the importance of Jesus and His cross influencing every aspect of life. You see, this is a rabbit trail. What time is it? Oh, I have time. This is a rabbit trail. But you know what? People like you and I have become very good at what I call compartmentalizing our lives. Let me give you a visual illustration of what I mean. I'll try to do it. In our lives, God is over here on Sunday. Right? Now picture that in your mind. God's over there on Sunday. We go to church. We sing some songs. We, we, we pray some prayers. We listen to a sermon. We, we, we read the bulletin. But then, then, over here on this side of the stage is Monday through Saturday. Right? You got that? God on that side of the stage, Sunday. Monday through Saturday, the rest of our lives rest of our lives when we do our thing and often God isn't included in our thing. Why? Because he's over there on the other side. We, we compartmentalized, I'll give Sunday to God. But the rest of the week I'm, I'm doing my job or, or I'm doing this or I'm doing that or the other and, and, and God doesn't come into that equation. That's called compartmentalization. Can I just say that's the way the world wants to do it? That's the way they would prefer it to happen? Because if we're proclaiming the cross, not just on Sunday, but on Tuesday through Saturday, it makes the world uncomfortable. 
Why? Because the cross has become offensive to the world. If you don't believe that, a few years back, Rick Warren, the pastor of, of, of Saddleback Community Church, writer of 40 Days of Purpose, was asked to lead the invocation at President Obama's presidential inauguration. Some of you may remember this. In that prayer, Warren prayed an unabashedly Christian prayer in which he invoked the name of Jesus at least four times during his prayer and then closed by the entire, asking the entire crowd to quote with him the Lord's Prayer. Steve Chapman, who was a columnist for the Chicago Tribune, wrote after that inauguration, he said, and I quote, If I were a Christian... I'd have been embarrassed by Rick Warren's invocation at the inauguration. It was aggressively evangelical, serving to exclude everyone who doesn't accept the divinity of Jesus. Warren seemed to think he was at a revival rather than a secular event meant for all in a country whose constitution rejects official sponsorship of any faith. I read those words once again on Google a couple of weeks ago, that story And my translation of that is that this columnist was complaining that Rick Warren should have been an American first and a follower of Jesus second. Had Warren done that, it would have been the wrong thing for him to do. Warren may may have been there to pray an invocation for the President of the United States, but he was there as a representative of Jesus Christ. And in his prayer, Warren resolved to know nothing except Jesus and him crucified. And if that's upsetting to anybody else, too bad. Too bad. Why? Because that's what he was called to do. And it's not just what he was called to do. It's what every one of us have been called to do. We were saved. Say that with me. I am saved. Because of what happened on that cross. And as a result, I am Christ's representative. Paul talks in 2 Corinthians chapter number 5. We are Christ's ambassadors. We are representing the values of the homeland to a world that we are living in. We've been called to be Christians first. And we need to realize that is the most important thing in our lives. Again, Paul said it this way, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the power of God at work, saving everyone who believes. Now, nothing in this world should take first place in our lives. Nothing except the cross of Christ. We're called to be followers of Jesus first. And in this country, we're called to be Americans second. Let me tell you what, I'm proud to be an American, amen? I'm proud to be an American. It's a great country, and I've been blessed to have been born here, but hear me on this. If I have any pride in anything at all, I'm more proud to be a follower of Jesus Christ than anything else in my life. We're called to be his followers first, and Republicans are Democrats second. We are called to be his followers first and employees of our jobs second. We are called to be followers of Jesus Christ first and brothers and sisters and uncles and aunts and even mothers and fathers second. 
It is the most important thing. Nothing else in this world should take that place in our lives. Why? Remember the corpse? We've died to the world. We've died to this world. And because we've been buried in the waters of baptism, and because we have been raised from those waters to live for Jesus and to stand for his cross in a hostile, lost world. I'm closing. You know, I've heard stories from families who thought that it was very important for their loved ones to be buried with items that they loved while they were alive. <laughs> you need to Google this sometime on, on the internet. You'll, you'll be amazed. Um, they put items, in other words, they put items in the caskets of their loved ones that represent the things that those loved ones loved most in the world. Uh, some of you soldiers of Christ will like this one. You probably heard about it, probably. Uh, a, a Christian writer named Roger Duncan told about going to a funeral where a young man had been killed in a motorcycle accident. His mother buried him with the Harley-Davidson bike he'd been riding when he died. Duncan remarked, well, first, the mother explained it this way. It was his whole life. And Duncan noted afterwards, how tragic is it to have a whole life wrapped up in a motorcycle. But as I thought about it, it got me to thinking more. What if that was a common practice? What if, or maybe I should say it this way, what kind of things would people be buried with? Well, I'm sure that some would be buried with their stocks and bonds. Others might be buried with their bottles of beer or whiskey. Others, might, graves might be filled with fishing poles or, or golf clubs or rifles, guns. Another casket might be filled with, I don't know why, but those latest romance novels. Still somebody else might be buried with all the remaining season tickets that they have to every baseball, basketball, and football game. But here's the question. If you died tomorrow, what would they put in your casket as being the most important thing in your life? What is it that's been so important in your life that your family would put tokens of that something in your grave? Would it be a symbol of a donkey or an elephant representing your political views? Would it be symbols of your hobbies or your passions? Would it be the watch that you've been given for many years of service to your company? Or would your family fill your casket with something that stood for the priority of your relationship with Jesus Christ? You've been saved by the cross of Jesus Christ. And you've been saved by the cross of Jesus Christ to die to the things of this world. So the question in closing is this, have you died? Have you put your life on the cross? Worship team, would you come and would you, I didn't talk to you about this beforehand, but would you play that song again? Um, 
heart of worship. If you cue that up for me, please. Again, the words of that song that I quoted earlier. The truth is rising from the mist, and the word is this, that when Jesus calls a man, he calls him to come and die. When he calls you to follow, he doesn't want you better. He wants you deader. He wants us dead to this world and alive to the power of God. Lord Jesus, this is this passage, this verse, this instruction that you gave to those who would be your followers is one of the most difficult passages of Scripture for every pastor, every preacher, every evangelist to preach on. When we're told to take up our cross because of the world we live in and because of the misunderstanding about what the cross really is, we've, we've come to hear people say things like, so-and-so is just the cross that I have to bear. Or, or this issue is just the cross that I'm called to bear in this life. Or this disease that will be with me as long as I live here in this life. It's just the cross that I have to bear. No, none of those things are the cross. The cross is an instrument of death. And what Jesus is saying to us in that passage is you have to die to the things of this world so that the things of this world no longer have an attraction to you. Lord, I think the, the reason that the cross has become so unpopular or so offensive to many in the world is because we live in a world of such comfort. We don't like inconvenience. We don't like discomfort. We don't like being displaced. But Lord, as you know better than any of us, any of us who, who like to do things that are within our comfort zones, there are no comfort zones on a cross. Nothing comfortable about it. And if we are to be your followers, we must be willing to be displaced, to bear discomfort, to experience rejection, to run the risk of being offensive, all for the sake of this fact, taking up our cross, which saved us and which allowed us to die to the things of this world, is what's going to get us to heaven. And there is nothing in this world more important than our goal of heaven. So for every person in this congregation this morning, Holy Spirit, I'm asking you to help us to do a self-evaluation, every one of us, a self-evaluation and find those things in our life that we are not yet dead to. And will it be willing to allow the cross 
to no longer make them attraction to us. Would you do that as we sing this song?